a stunning report just out. It shows a record-shattering 6.6 million Americans filed for unemployment benefits last week. That is double last More than 38 million people have now lost their jobs in the United States since the pandemic hit in March. And these are the worst layoffs the country has seen since the Great Depression of the early 1930s. What do you do for a living? As of last spring, that answer has changed for many of us. But for some people, job loss has gone from tragedy to choice. Some people have simply decided not to go back to work. Some are deciding life may actually be better with less money and more time to do what really matters to them. And there are quite a few different reasons people aren't returning to work. One of them might be that they were near retirement and decided to retire early, and so they're not in the labor force anymore. Another one is because this was a public health crisis. Uh, some people might not feel safe returning to work. Another reason could be simply that they found something maybe better to do with their time. From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today on the show, COVID has changed the way we look at work. As many as 38 million Americans may have lost their jobs at the height of the pandemic. And while some are still reeling, others are reconsidering what matters to them, and it's not their job. Nate Throckmorton is a professor of economics at William & Mary. He says there are many reasons why people are turning their backs on their old jobs. Nate, this is really uncharted territory for economists, right? We've just had a near depression last spring. And as we're now surging into reopening, a lot of people believe the jobs market has forever changed. What about you? What do you see going on? Well, I certainly think it's uh, changed for some people. I can see two recoveries going on. If you split people into how much they earn per year, people that earn $60,000 or more have fully recovered. There's as many people employed at that income level or higher than pre-pandemic. And then uh, there are people that work hourly jobs uh, in leisure and hospitality that uh, make less than $28,000 per year. And you know, 20 to 30% fewer of those people work now than they did pre-pandemic. So you can see two recoveries going on. One is still in progress for the low-income earners, and the other, the other has already happened for the high-income earners. You know, a lot of people were blaming those unemployment checks and said people aren't motivated to go back to work because they're doing okay with that money. But you said they're actually a small part of why people aren't returning to work. What's your reasoning for that? Well, I think there are some big reasons why people wouldn't return to work. One of them might be that they were near retirement and decided to retire early, and so they're not in the labor force anymore. Another one is because this was a public health crisis. Uh, some people might not feel safe returning to work. Another reason could be simply that they found something maybe better to do with their time. Uh, maybe that's caring for their children or their parents or doing something uh, doing something else. I do, I've heard stories of people uh, not going back to work, but going back to school to get a certificate or a degree so that they have more bargaining power in the job market. I heard one captain of industry say one way to know it's not mostly about the unemployment checks is just looking at what he called the quits rate. He said the quits rate is at an all-time high. What does that mean, the quits rate? As people that are voluntarily choosing to, to leave their their job, even though maybe the job market is, has a full recovered. And again, they could be deciding to transition to a different industry. One of my friends told me that they decided to go back to school. And in the meantime, they, they stopped working at a restaurant and they started working in construction because there are lots of construction jobs, but they ultimately want to go back to school and that could take them out of the labor force for a while. I think there's more to it than people not returning to work because the wages aren't high enough. There's still a lot of other things people may be doing. In the last recession, there was a huge decline in employment, so fewer people working. That took a long time for people to return to the labor force and start looking for work. And so it is a slow adjustment uh, usually, so I'd, I would expect some of that to be present this time. And yet do you expect it to be faster this time? Well, uh, I think the high-income workers, as I said, the recovery has already happened for them. So we were hoping in leisure and hospitality here that the United States is open for business this summer and that people are out traveling again and going out to eat and going to shows and that sort of thing. So hopefully after this summer, we have a better understanding of how that brings people back to work and 
whether they stay. Uh, but I think it's a little too soon, too soon to tell. You know, a lot of managers, of course, are wringing their hands and saying, we simply can't find people who want to do the jobs. But others say they leave out of that sentence, they won't do the job at these wages. But once they raise their wage offer, they're easily filling the posts. Do you find that's true? Yeah, and that ma- that makes sense for sure. I think wages are definitely an incentive to, to work. As I said, you know, if you want to earn higher wages, maybe you move to a different sector if you're able to. For example, working in construction versus working at a restaurant. So if you're able to move where the where the jobs, the higher paying jobs are, that's great. However, if you if you can't move or you don't have a broader skill set or something to to make that move, then you might wait until the jobs and in the restaurant industry maybe pay more to to bring you back to work. Do you see the dynamic between employers and job fillers, owners and workers fundamentally changed for the next few years? There's been so much money at the very top levels of the economy and in corporations. Is this finally, at least temporarily, shifting more power to the labor force? I definitely think that a catastrophe like this can serve as a a catalyst for change. People previously uh, in their previous job may have not been happy with that job, may have not thought they were earning enough in that job, but still worked in it because, you know, the status quo is easier than making changes in someone's life, right? But now that you maybe were forced to stop working, you start to think seriously about what's the best use of my time. It could be that there's a better use of time or maybe it's worth it to wait until you find a better paying job. I think certainly that with the unemployment benefits being expanded and extended, that gives people a little bit more flexibility to make those choices. You know, the Democratic presidential candidate, Andrew Yang, he had mostly touted this idea of giving everybody, no matter what your income level, $1,000 a month for life. Have economists come to talk about that more? I certainly think there's increased interest uh, in this. I think the economist inside of me says there's probably a better use of funds if it was directed towards people who needed it more. So $1,000 to someone making less than $28,000 per year is is very valuable, but $1,000 to a a millionaire is not that valuable. In terms of efficiency, if I'm going to design a policy um, as an economist, I would probably want to do something like a, a negative income tax where low-wage earners get more money than, than high-wage earners. But I think the political reality is that it's much easier to sell a bill where everybody is getting an equal amount. So you don't have to make arguments about who deserves it or not. Everybody is fairly allocated the same amount of money. And I think uh, a good example of this is the Alaskan Oil Revenue Fund. Oil revenue that's taxed goes into a fund and is distributed across uh, residents of Alaska. That isn't conditional on income, that everybody gets the same payment. And I think the political situation in Alaska made that possible. You know, people could all get together and say, oh, that seems fair, so we'll, we'll do that. I feel like this kind of discussion about some sort of um, expanded safety net would, did not come up before the pandemic. Maybe it did during the last recession, but it wasn't acted on much. Is there more conversation among economists now to think, let's look to systems maybe that have provided more security to the lowest wage earners? I think the popularity in the universal wage, universal basic income, came from Andrew Yang in the, in the last election. But economists have been working on those kinds of ideas well before that, and looking at how, you know, communities receiving this extra money per week or per month use that in an entrepreneurial spirit, you know, invest in businesses and increase goods and services provided in that community. And there's a, you know, a, mu- a multiplier uh, effect, you know, you, you increase someone's uh, income by $200 per week. If you measure the overall production in that community, it increases by more than $200 per week. So there's a, there's a multiplier because that the money circles through that community and gets spent on other goods and services within that month. So certainly economists have been working on studying universal basic income or universal wage. As a nation, do we have that kind of money? It's so hard to process whether we have $6 trillion for a giant stimulus or whether we have 1000 a month <laughs> for everyone for universal income. Um, what do you make right. of it? 
So having worked uh, at Congress briefly, I had an internship at the Joint Committee on Taxation. I quickly realized that all those numbers are over a 10-year period. So, you know, the federal government might be 20, 25% of the U.S. economy in any given year. That That's probably about $6 trillion. But that's, you know, $6 trillion over over the next 10 years. So on a per year basis, it's not that big of a number. So that's one thing. So when you hear these big numbers, you have to realize that it's over a 10-year horizon. And in terms of financing it, yeah, it's ex- it's expensive to finance, I think. So how are you going to do that? You can you can do it in a variety of ways. But I think ultimately, when you're talking about, you know, providing universal income or universal childcare or something, or, you know, free education or something like that, you're going to have to raise taxes on somebody. And I think that's a big controversy is who are we going to raise taxes on and by how much? And that's something we saw in the last recession that just was just a non-starter. Um, if you can't raise taxes, then we can't, we can't have big spending bills. I feel like going back to the unemployment rate and the jobs market, we're in an inflection moment, right? We are, um, we're at a crossroads. So help me understand how big the immediate problem is and what you foresee in the next few months. Yeah, so the number of people with jobs has declined by 7.5 million, which is about the population of New York City proper. Uh, That's a lot of people. So some of these people have left the labor force and are not currently looking for work. Uh, That happens after every recession where people leave the labor force. That could be Older people that retired early, or it could be young people that are delaying uh, entering the job market and looking for work, or it could be people who have decided to stay home to care for parents or children. So I think the question is, are are people going to trickle back into the labor force and look for work? That's that's what I'm looking forward to. So after, after this summer, uh, after we've been open for business for a few more months, we'll have a better understanding of how many people are reentering uh, the labor force uh, to look for to look for jobs. Nate Throckmorton, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you. It's been, it's been a great opportunity. Nate Throckmorton is a professor of economics at William & Mary. Coming up next, how baby boomers are turning the job and housing markets on their heads. As many younger workers are enjoying more flexible work schedules, many baby boomers are leaving the workforce altogether. Jeanette Chapman is the director of George Mason University's Stephen S. Fuller Institute for Research on the Washington region's economic future. She says the exodus of boomers from the job market will change work for millennials. Jeanette, a lot of people expected a steady return to normal this summer after the massive vaccine campaign. I know the Delta variant's really throwing us a curve, but did that happen? Did we have a steady return to normal, let's say, in D.C.? In some ways, yes, we did. However, when you pull apart the numbers a little bit more, there's been a little bit of... of, of variation in what's moving first and what's moving second and how fast the growth has been in in different industries. How much have cities across the country, and in D.C. in particular, regained what they had lost at the height of the pandemic? Are we 80 percent recovered, 20 percent? In the Washington area, we have recovered broadly half of our jobs a little bit more. Nationally, it's a little bit more. Uh, Nationally, about 75% of all of the jobs have been recovered. But this, again, is looking at that top line number. And so, for example, leisure and hospitality jobs, we still in the Washington area have about 25% fewer of these compared to a pre-pandemic level. So, for example, in the Washington area, we have about 5% fewer jobs than before the pandemic. Do you see the economy tied also to how cautious people are in certain cities versus other cities about whether to get vaccinated or whether to mask or whether to stay home? Absolutely. (laughs) How people have reacted to the health crisis has varied across geographies and across demographics. So young people tend to have been less affected or or have changed their behaviors less than, say, older people. 
In the Washington area, we are notoriously risk averse, and that also has played a role. Our workers are still primarily at home if they can afford to be, whereas in other metros, many workers have started moving back into the office at really large rates. And that all plays a role when you think about your downtown retail or downtown lunch places. During the day, downtown DC is still fairly empty, whereas downtowns in, say, Miami, they've picked back up. And so their foot traffic is up and their spending is up. And that that all has this ripple effect through the economy. I wonder how much of DC's slow recovery has been because it's wealthier. The people can afford to stay home and bide their time. Not all the people, of course, because the people without jobs or in the service industries are really hard to hit. But do you think you have cities that are less wealthy, that recovered more fully and were less vaccinated? Well, wealthier cities or wealthier households, usually wealthier households rely on income that can be done remotely, whereas lower income households typically rely on on retail or, or leisure and hospitality types of jobs, not always, but frequently. And those households were forced into either making the choice of losing their income or not changing their behavior, maybe even as much as they would have wanted to. There isn't a one-for-one, oh, rich metros did this, poor metros did that, because there's a mix of all of this activity happening at once. You know, when you look at the real numbers behind the still lagging economy, are you more worried than maybe the rest of us are? I mean, do you see that there is more permanent job loss than we may realize? I am most concerned actually right now about labor force trends because the numbers that we've been focused on generally are jobs and unemployment. Right. And there's a third bucket that we haven't been talking as much about, which is how many people are interested in having a job, whether they're employed or or officially unemployed. And during the pandemic, the labor force dropped off in a way that that I, I haven't seen in the in the numbers f- with data going back 20 years. This could be temporary. People could just have said, I'm not interested in having a job right now because I'm caring for my children, because it's not safe for me to be looking for a job or any one of these reasons. However, this could be more permanent. There are a very large number of baby boomers that had not retired before the pandemic, and this may have been the impetus for them to do so. They may have said, I don't really need this job anymore and I'm ready to retire. There could also be people that say, well, I've changed my life in this way. So, you know, we're now a one income household and it's fine. We don't, we don't need two, two incomes because we've been able to make it work thus far and it makes us happier. And if the labor market doesn't return to pre-pandemic levels, we won't be able to fill the jobs that are opening. And there's some early warning signs that that not all of the decrease in the labor market has been temporary. And there's some industries where it is actually increasingly difficult to hire workers back. Some of this might be temporary, but there, if, if people have made the decision in the long term to leave the labor force, then that is actually what worries me the most. If it is boomers simply retiring early, isn't that fine? In the long term, yes, it's fine. The problem is that if if it happens all at once, usually it happens incrementally, um, but if it happens all at once, what that means is that it takes longer for businesses to adjust and it is going to delay all of the recovery that needs to happen because it's not just happening in a a, a normal good year. It's happening during what should be a very strong economic expansion. And if you don't have the workers for that expansion, it's almost like compounding interest rates. It pulls down the expansion for years to come because if you don't get those workers in the early part of the expansion, you don't have that growth to build off of. Couldn't it be a boon though for really young workers who normally have to wait years 
for their turn at the good jobs? It will help accelerate that path forward, um, but they can't get trained up in three months to take the place of someone who has had a job for 10 or 15 years. So that that will again lead to a greater skills mismatch between the job demand and the worker that's filling that job. The the two biggest generations in in the U.S. are baby boomers and millennials. And in between them are Gen X, and they're, they're a smaller generation, so we don't talk about them quite as much. And in the workforce prior to the pandemic, there has been a bit of a leapfrogging of generational leadership. Now that the pandemic might have accelerated the retirement of the baby boomers, that's going to put additional pressure on training and workforce and really uh, institutional knowledge and experience. It's those those things that you can't necessarily get by reading a book. And also look at housing trends now and during the pandemic. A lot of people move from the cities to the suburbs, and there was worry the cities would be hollowed out for a very long time. Have you seen that playing out? We like to think of everything as being static where it's just we just take a snapshot and this is you know there there are x number of people here but in reality people move in and out of places constantly one of the main sources or a major source of new population or new residents especially for cities are young college grads and during the pandemic college grads weren't moving. They were staying wherever they were because it wasn't safe to move. And so the inflow of people that typically go into a city stopped. However, the outflow of people, typically people leave the cities uh, as they mature and form young families or older families, depending on where you are in the spectrum, you will move a little bit one rung out. That's a very common life cycle change that happens. That did happen during the pandemic. The second issue was generational cycling. Baby boomers are primarily empty nesters and either in or nearing their retirement age. Usually when that happens, there's an uptick in either migration or uh, downsizing for their unit. In the Washington region especially, but it's probably true nationally as well, baby boomers weren't downsizing. So there were no units for millennials to essentially cycle up into. And new units weren't being built fast enough to help kind of ease this issue. And the pandemic essentially accelerated this cycling. Baby boomers decided to get off the fence about moving and selling, and that freed up units for millennials to essentially move into. And this cycling is is part of the natural process of any home cycle. It, it doesn't mean that things have changed forever or that there's any sort of underlying misalignment in the number of sales or the pricing of sales. It is, it's that the activity has gotten really concentrated because a lot of people made the same decision all at once. You know, we talk about the haves and the have-nots when it comes to jobs, that people with office jobs, white-collar jobs, high-paid jobs skated through the pandemic for the most part, and the burden was really on people working day-to-day for their income. Housing-wise, what are you seeing? Is it widening the gap in terms of opportunity between the haves and the have-nots? Housing-wise, the people who are in the ownership market or looking to get into the ownership market are typically the high-income households that were not economically affected by the pandemic. Renters, on the other hand, typically are the ones that, that... were most affected economically during the pandemic. The, the the owner's market and the rental market are doing completely different things right now. And the, the owner market is, is, is hot and there is a large amount of demand. And the rental market, especially in many certain areas, it is struggling. This also leads to some issues around evictions and the ability for a stable environment for lower income households or the ability for them to maintain a stable environment because 
the the pandemic often disrupted their income streams and while they would were able to pay rent based on some um, national data, generally speaking, the, the numbers there aren't as bad as, as you would think that they would be, that did disrupt their day-to-day in a lot of other ways. And so all of this, again, just re-emphasizes this divergence of opportunity depending on what kind of job you have. Sure does, doesn't it? You know, it it just seems like there's such a scramble for ever higher rental and housing prices. I don't see how people with the least amount of money are going to fare. Well, um, the rental market, again, is not a monolith. The headlines typically focus on high-end units, and the bulk of the rental market is actually older units that may not fit the what we think of as the city life. They're, some of them are townhomes, some of them are farther out, and they, they're a little bit older, they have fewer amenities. And the, the rents in those markets are probably the ones that have actually declined in many places because people weren't able to afford the increases. What do you predict the recovery will look like just in the near term? What are you imagining? So in the near term, all economic data should be trending upwards. The improvements will not be consistent for every single industry. The other thing that will lead to some unevenness is that people will probably be taking vacations <laughs> this summer, which they have not done mm-hmm. in a very long time, and many people are itching to do so. And so that will probably lead to a little bit of a, um, a shift in um, an acceleration of leisure and travel data over the summer, but a slight deceleration on what we think of as kind of the business side of the recovery, just because people need a break. <laughs> How worried are you about... The Delta variant deeply affecting the recovery? I am listening to the health experts about the Delta variant, and right now it doesn't seem like we know enough about it to understand what it might do to the economy. If the Delta variant behaves fundamentally differently and it has completely different sets of risks, then we we will almost restart the process. We won't end up with the same level of decline because we're not fully recovered yet, but it could it could moderate our path forward, especially if it does if the delta variant is um, a fundamentally different illness. Jeanette Chapman, thank you for talking with me and with good reason. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Jeanette Chapman is director of George Mason University's Stephen S. Fuller Institute for Research on the Washington region's economic future. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason. At the start of the pandemic, Americans rallied around a warlike mentality. It's us against the invisible enemy. And to defeat this invisible enemy, we all went home. We stayed away from loved ones. We wore masks when we braved the grocery store. But then that collective will started to fade. Thomas Duncan says there are no one-size-fits-all fixes to a problem as big as a pandemic. Thomas Duncan is a professor of economics at Radford University. Thomas, you've been looking at the inefficiency of our national response to the pandemic. Is it fair to say you believe that we should be focusing more on state and local responses to the disease and less at the federal level? Do you think that's a fair assessment of how you see the the way we should be tackling this pandemic? Um, I think that is a fair way to, to think about it. My colleagues and I, uh, Christopher Coyne uh, and Abigail Hall, we co-authored a paper, and we used the the COVID nineteen as examples. But really, it's about the way we think about and the way we model pandemic responses generally. And, and our critique is that many of the ways that you model that and think about it from a public policy perspective is that we can just 
have someone in charge, we use the term public health brain. So you have this theoretical person in charge who can just kind of look from DC out across the US and come up with, here's the policy design, here's what we need to do, and here's how we're going to make everyone safe, everyone secure, and everyone better off. And basically, our, our argument back to that is, can we really do everything all at one time? Or do we actually have to rely on people on the ground who have the local knowledge and the local connections and the local incentives to, to get together and come up with ways to solve these kinds of problems? So give me a for instance. Let's say, hypothetically, we're back at the beginning of the pandemic and we're in, let's say, the Trump administration. And we don't yet know what is really coming at us, but we have a sense of foreboding and we've heard that people are dropping like flies in China and Italy, right? Hasn't really hit us yet. You think we should turn to mayors, let's say, to say, all right, how do each of us in each city and town want to handle this? I, I think that those mayors are going to have a lot more sort of on the ground knowledge of what's happening in their own areas. Now, I, I do think that information is key. Right. So I think providing information and saying, look, we're seeing this thing emerge. We're seeing these kinds of things happen in other countries. We want you guys to be aware and we want you to be aware that this is serious. Um, I, I do think we failed there. I think there was not a lot of transparency sort of early on. And there were a lot of mistakes made early on. Right. With the should we wear masks? Should we not wear masks? That kind of thing happened early. The, the issue with the top down kind of approach. Think about how we had the economic shutdown. They shut down large swaths where nothing was actually happening in some of those areas. Public health officials were not really in favor of that as a broad approach to previous types of situations like this. Just one of the arguments they presented, if you if you read some of the literature on it, was people are going to get fatigued. Uh, and so if you start them too early, they're going to be done with it and over it and stop responding to your message before there, there's actually an upswing. What do you think about the mentality we have that we should galvanize our forces and act as one with a shared national goal to fight sort of war footing against the COVID spread? So a lot of my research is in foreign intervention. Uh, and so I'm very familiar with that kind of language. And it's very useful rhetorical language. Um, and so you can think we're going to go into Afghanistan. And as long as we have enough political will and support behind us, we are going to reform that country into a thriving democratic state that looks like a small U.S. Rhetoric is one thing, but being able to do that is different, right? There is no such thing as national will. When you look at how these things are modeled, it's that we can make everyone better off, right? The assumption there is that that we can do one thing or a combination of 10 things that will make everyone happier and better off. And, and that's, that's great. But people don't have the same goals. And people have very different goals at very different times. Um, so from the pandemic example, some of what we look at, right, is, is people don't just exclusively value their health, right? So health is up there, right? We like to be healthy. But when you think about, you know, you told, told people to stay home, um, you told people not to go to schools, you told them not to do different, to do different things, right? Some of those people couldn't afford to take the time off, right? Like wait staff, waiters, and, you know, most of those people are living paycheck to paycheck or, or tip night to tip night. Um, and suddenly they're home. And some of those people might have been in the low risk category. Um, so low risk of hospitalization, low risk of death, and maybe they were willing to take the chance because they actually valued the financial security that, that was necessary to keep going much higher than they valued the health risk, you know, and, and everyone has their own way that they rank those risks, which means your policy is, is not working and your approach to the policy, right? Your national will isn't, isn't there. So it's one thing to say, Everybody buckle up. That's a slightly different argument. That says, for your own safety, buckle up, and we're going to arrest you if you don't or cite you. Um, everybody slather sunscreen on before you go to the pool today. That's different than saying, everybody stop passing this disease on because if we don't stop it, it's going to kill a lot mm -hmm. of us who don't want to be killed. And I think there are, so with those examples, right, the sunscreen example, I mean, that's that's 
sort of your own risk. Like if I don't put sunscreen on, right, I bear like the direct cost of that, right? Like I'm the one that's going to get burned. Yeah. Um, and I don't want that legislated. Yeah. I hear and, you. And so the the idea that, yes, that this can transmit, right, that's that's where you get the the sort of public aspect to it, right? Which is, this is a public health crisis and therefore it might, it might require some public health solutions. You might not get the say you want to have because other people are severely impacted. So what do you say to that? What I, what I say to that is that we still have to be really careful with the way that we talk about that because what you're assuming yeah. with the idea that if we don't follow this plan, people will be impacted. The implicit assumption there is that if we do follow the plan, people won't be impacted. But that's that's not what we saw. Uh, and, and it's things that you can't really account for, right? Because social distancing is, is a thing, right? Like you sent them home to be socially distant. Um, some people can thrive in that environment, but there are some people who do not. And so one of the things that you see from there is a spike, right, in alcoholism, suicides, drug abuse. You see these things begin to increase. And so it's not like it's costless to send everybody there. Some of the things we found in, in our research, right, is the the number of people reporting in for like heart attacks and aneurysms and strokes, fell. And the doctor said, you know, it's not that people are having few of them. It's that they're not coming to the hospital, so they're just dying at home. So what would you suggest? What do you think we could have done differently with this pandemic and should think about going forward? Um, so many of the people in public health were arguing, look, we're, we're, we're doing too much of a top-down approach to this. We need to be worked on how do we separate, right, the high-risk individuals from the low-risk individuals rather than doing a one-size-fits-all policy. Why don't we start thinking about breaking this down and starting a targeted policy towards the areas that are most in need? So, for instance, we could say the people who should mask and leave their workplaces are older people, people mm -hmm. with comorbidities, people with diabetes, and that sort, and let everybody else go their own way. Well, you know, get, give giving recommendations, and, and sometimes... You know, giving recommendations can have a better effect than giving people mandates, right? Like that's just some people react negatively to mandated things. Um, and so the, 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 the argument there is, right, like if what you're doing isn't working, maybe we need to be thinking about how to, to be a little bit more humble in, in the kind of things that we're doing, right? And, and we also have to realize that, that not everybody who's engaged in the decision making or engaged in the, in the different policies are, are going to be like the, the best people. And this one comes from if you think like it wasn't just that we told people to go home, right? We did massive spending bills. And so we, we've spent, you know, over $5 trillion on COVID in the last year, year and a half to, to two year period. Not all of that that went into those packages was was for the health and safety and security of the people during a pandemic. Lots of people got access to money that probably didn't need it or that that they used. They leveraged the situation to get bad public public policy outcomes. Right. Um, if you look at the CARES Act, right, that's two two point two trillion dollars that that had over fifteen hundred lobbyists. Right. So it was the most lobbied bill in, in history to date. Everybody wanted a piece of $2.2 trillion and they had to pass it in a hurry and they had to pass it right in an emergency. That is a great time for lots of bad actors to get to get their hands on funds. Which lump of money was that? Was that the one in the spring of the first pandemic part or the the fall that came later? That that was the early package. Right. As an economist, what, you know, practically speaking, what might have been better? Breaking that down into smaller parts is going to yield better results. Like, let's spend this amount of money to get vaccines. Let's put that in there and put that on the table. Theoretically, you can all agree, let's get vaccines going. Um, and so let's put the money on that. It should be easier, right, to say these people are having a crisis and they need water. Let's get them water. That's a very sort of achievable goal. But if you're like, these people are in a crisis, so let's redesign the entire system under which they live. That's a very different ask. And so when you're looking at it uh, in terms of complexity, right, we have a pandemic going, people are lacking sort of medical solutions to this. Well, let's focus on some of the medical solutions to this. 
once you start adding in, we also need to take care of everyone else amongst all of these different dimensions. Now it's really difficult to figure out, you know, even what's working, what's not working. So early on in the pandemic, the huge CARES Act, mm-hmm. and early on in the pandemic, everything shut down and the mask mandates, et cetera. Now that you look at the second wave and we're in the sort of Delta variant early stages, ostensibly, do you start to see as you look around the federal government, the state governments, businesses, towns, people are responding with a little more nuance mm-hmm. this time? Some places are leaving it to their locals to think about, right? So so they're letting like local governments kind of set their own policies and things. They're letting people with local knowledge doing that. That's not true everywhere though, right? Some state governors are setting, right, or th- are at least talking about reintroducing mandates. Some state governors are making laws against mandates, Um and, and so you're getting, yeah, so it really depends on where you're at, right? But if you go to some areas where they're not spiking and you try the same policies that you had before, you're going to get a lot more pushback. Well, Thomas Duncan, thank you for sharing your insights on With Good Reason. Thank you for having me. Thomas Duncan is a professor of economics at Radford University. So when the pandemic first hit, we were both deathly afraid and constantly running to the store for sanitizer, toilet paper, and anything else we thought we really needed or would keep us alive. Many states introduced new legislation to make sure prices didn't skyrocket on these new hot commodities. My next guest has found that those anti-price gouging laws that were meant to help keep the essentials on the shelves actually led to more COVID deaths. Rick Chakraborty is a professor of economics at Christopher Newport University. Rick, you looked into price gouging laws that happened during the pandemic early on, and you found that, yeah, they kept prices down, but at a cost. What was the cost? So you wanted to get your hand sanitizer and toilet paper in stores, but also at lower prices. That was the intent of these price gouging laws. But what ended up happening is you couldn't find them at stores. So these laws created shortages. Don't you think the shortages would have happened anyway? I mean, people were worried about it and they ran and they bought up all the stuff they needed and suddenly there weren't any more after that. Sure. So if we did not restrict prices from going up, then two things would prevent the shortage from happening. First, consumers would look at these higher prices and say, whoa, I need to conserve my usage. And second, the high prices would inspire stores to replenish their stocks. I can make more money by selling this stuff. And so this is what I need to stock up more on. But aren't stores allowed to slightly raise prices to recognize, okay, everybody wants toilet paper suddenly and charge maybe a dollar more per package not so much price gouging as reflecting increased demand. Absolutely, I agree. I think the term price gouging itself is a misnomer. What we're really talking about is disaster-induced price surges. But we call it price gouging as if there's this uh, sleazy businessman trying to rip you off because you're vulnerable at this point. But that's not really what's going on. What's going on is it has become more costly for me to try and provide these services. So do you agree with most economists that price gouging laws, laws aimed at keeping the prices fair and even, are actually counterproductive and actually shouldn't be enacted? Absolutely, I agree. Uh, and, And that makes sense because these laws are typically activated following localized emergencies. And so we never have the Um, experiments to the scale that would allow us to really look at the effects of these laws. There are famous studies that look at what happened when uh, Katrina came in and uh, in certain places, price restrictions were imposed uh, on things like bottled water. And immediately uh, bottled water was short in availability in stores. Um, So you you were trying to make sure that uh, your, your town people are able to get water at low prices, 
So you restrict these prices, and what ends up happening is, sure, the prices are low, but there's no water. Why wouldn't manufacturers, why wouldn't water bottlers, or in the pandemic case, mask makers and toilet paper producers, simply ramp up their production and say, this is wonderful? That's exactly what happened. However, how plentiful were masks before the pandemic made them important? And how plentiful are masks now? Just think about it. Just think about going from, you know, masks only being used in certain medical situations and right. there being very limited types of masks being available to now going to stores like Old Navy and finding all these varieties of masks, right? Now people are matching masks with their ties. Yeah. <laughs> so that's exactly what happens. It's interesting, however, that almost every state in America has anti-price gouging laws. 42 of them ended up with some measure of some sort of price gouging law. 34 of them had price gouging laws already in their books. And the legislation there was that whenever the state declares an emergency situation, these price gouging laws are immediately kicked into effect. And then um, eight other states introduced new price gouging legislation. That was interesting. One conclusion you had was the search for scarce products, toilet paper and all, actually mm -hmm. led to more COVID deaths. That was your theory, right? Yeah, exactly. Did you find many more people likely died from looking for scarce products? Um, what we found was at least 12 extra daily deaths in 20 to 28 days from the day people were forced to go out and search because of the active price gouging laws. How do you calculate that? How do you come up with roughly 12 additional daily deaths? We measure how the deaths and cases increased in states that had active price gouging laws. And we compared those with the increase uh, in cases and deaths in states that didn't have price gouging laws. You sure that's not, what do we say, you know, causation uh, is not correlation? <laughs> no, that, that's exactly what you should ask. And we're Pretty sure it's not. Uh, that's the whole point of our statistical analysis. What we looked at is whether anti-price gouging laws cause shortages. And the way we did that was by looking at online searches as a measure, a related measure of shortages. How could you look at online shortages? Google shopping trends. Google tracks shopping searches from by geographical areas down to uh, cities, right? So we're looking at people conducting shopping searches for hand sanitizer and toilet paper on Google to find these things. We verified that online searches went up, but what about physical in-store searches? A team of scientists, uh, Victor Couture uh, from the University of British Columbia and his colleagues, used cell phone-based location data to come up with measures of searches in stores. But probably it's best to think about these things as my cell phone being in proximity to your cell phone. If that proximity is recorded within a store, within a distance that could cause this sort of infection, then we're marking that as an increase in searches. So this is called the device exposure index. How much exposure does my device have to your device? Right. So you not only could look at Google trends of what people were trying to find, right. you could look at cell phone proximity one to another to see how much exposure to COVID might people have had. Yes, within commercial stores. Just to uh, make sure that we're not just finding, picking up general trends, We've looked at whether these device exposures were also higher in places like parks, and we don't see any such evidence. But of course they're going to be higher in grocery stores. We're all up and down the aisles there, whether there's scarcity or not, right? So remember, we're talking about the increase, the increase oh. 
in your visits before and after activating the law, these laws in the same location. Right. So, so right. of course, grocery stores are going to have more visitors than parks in general. But why would we expect the increase in numbers of visitors to be higher in grocery stores than in parks? Because they're limiting us to just one and we're going back and back to get one and hoard. Absolutely, because I'm searching more. So our work seems to show that we could have avoided at least 12 extra deaths each day if states hadn't activated price gouging laws. So when we think about the benefits of keeping prices down, we want to put them side by side with the costs of activating price gouging laws. In normal times, we're looking at shortages of the goods that you're trying to uh, ensure people are able to buy at lower prices, but throw in a pandemic in the, pandemic in the mix, and now you're actually undermining the policy of trying to mitigate people uh, having too many social contacts. Well, Rick, thank you for sharing your insights with me on With Good Reason. Thank you so much and uh, all the best. Rick Chakraborty is a professor of economics at Christopher Newport University. Support for With Good Reason is provided by the University of Virginia Health System, pioneering treatments to save lives and preserve brain function for stroke patients. UVAHealth.com. With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Maya Neer and Cassandra Deering are our interns. For the podcast, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.